let's jump into our intro on Isaiah. This will only be uh, very much intro material because we have about 40, did we get out at 50? Or two? We got two. So I got 50 minutes left, okay? I have a 10 minute video, I think, at the end uh, from the Bible Project people again. It's going to take you through the first 39 chapters. Next week, this is actually a double week, or that's tomorrow, right? But whatever. This week and next week is Isaiah. So you actually have two weeks to get Isaiah done. So that's really good, right, David? Um, so we will cover uh, much more of the actual book next week. And next week I will show you the second portion of the video, which is also a 10-minute big 10-minute encapsulation. So the prophet Isaiah. So let's look at this, all right? So interesting features first. Actually, I think I threw a few other slides in here. So timeline. I really need to rearrange probably where these are so they match my notes. But um, Logos has a couple of pre-made slides related to each book of the Bible, kind of. So, so Uzziah dies and Jotham becomes king. And this here is when Isaiah begins his prophetic ministry, okay? So 742 to 700 B.C. Or if you just want to round it, 740. So how many years? 40, right? So make it simple, right? So 40 years, 740 to 700, okay? Um, I've seen 741 to 739, 742. Remember, old stuff, dates are off by a year or two sometimes. Um, Assyria conquers Israel right here. Notice that it's 722, and he is prophesying till 700, right? So he, he's there during this whole time period. All right, 715, Ahaz dies and Hezekiah becomes king. 701, Sennacherib invades Judah. So he is here during this whole time period. He is God's man speaking truth into the time period. These are just some of the, the places on, on the map for you. So uh, Babylon is way over here, okay? So Assyria and, and Babylon are over here. Egypt, obviously, here. And uh, Jerusalem, the area we're talking about. We're going to mention other nations that God has a judgment against. These are some of these other nations and, and where they are. <coughs> uh, this map, not sure if you can see it so well from back there, but I think this is from Nelson's book of Bible charts. This simply has the various prophets. I really should have had this in our other presentation on the prophets overview um, of, of where the prophets are born and where they did some of their, their ministry. Okay? So I'm not sure that you can actually see much of that there. Interesting features. There's more chapters than Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but by word count, it's third. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel actually have more words. Uh, Isaiah has more chapters. 66 chapters, a microcosm of the Bible itself. Um, Darushi notes that uh, Walter Kaiser has created this little thing here on the bottom. Uh, the Book of Judgment with 39 chapters, 1 through 39, parallels the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the Book of Comfort with 27 chapters, parallels the 27 books of the New Testament. Begins with John the Baptist, chapter 40, for the second section. Centered on the atonement, ends with the glorious image of God and restored creation. So if you see that as a parallel, then you can thank uh, Walter Kaiser and you can realize that he is an Old Testament scholar. I think he's still at Yale School of Seminary. <coughs> and he worked for a number of years. <coughs> All right, the title, the superscription. Superscription is uh, similar to Micah 1.1, Hosea 1.1, and other superscriptions of the prophetic books. Uh, the na it names a prophet and occasionally a prophesied under. Okay, so in, in Isaiah 1.1, 1, 1, 
So basically concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reign of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, king of Judah. Okay? So that kind of covers the scope of the book. Um, in addition to that, Gary Light notes that uh, indicates additional superscriptions are at 2.1 and 13.1. Um, so he sees at 2.1 and 13.1 these additional superscriptions, and he marks them. So in 2.1 it says, The vision Isaiah saw of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he views these as uh, kind of like the corridor from Genesis, I guess, as the dividing lines of the segments of the book. All right? So the superscriptions. Revelation. Uh, the revelation of Isaiah. Um, and Alan Ross notes that the, the way that the word means and the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem um, that Isaiah saw, okay, this is the revelation given to him by God, so it isn't just a revelation of Jesus. You know that the book of Revelation is actually, um, that's only a partial title of the book, right? Because the revelation that was given was Jesus Christ that he gave to his servant John, right? So the, the Hebrew word um, chazon from chazah is a synonym for the ordinary word racha to see. And passages like Psalm uh, 58.9, Psalm 11.7, and Canticles, or Song of Solomon 7.1, um, it can mean see in a supersensory way, in a visionary trance, or an ecstatic state, such as in Numbers 24.4. As a noun, the word describes divine communication. Okay, and so what we have is, is God is divinely communicating, he's revealing himself through Isaiah to be a mouthpiece so that he can then uh, reveal this or teach what he has been revealed to the people. Uh, the Hebrew word dabar, um, meaning word or event, is the thing that the prophets saw. Okay, So it doesn't have to be only a literal word, whatever they saw, um, in this vision or however God has revealed it to them. <coughs> Light also notes on this idea of the word vision, okay, or vision report, he says it's usually relatively brief and is introduced by verbs of sight. So in Amos 7 1, and also Amos 7 4, 7 7, and 8 1, it says the Lord showed. That, that's, the, that's the word, the first one up there, hazon, okay? So the Lord showed. In Jeremiah 1 11, 1 13, Amos 7 8, and 8 2, he says, What do you see? And then in Daniel 8, 1, it's a vision appeared. In Isaiah 6, 1, it's I saw. So it's uh, usually introduced by verbs of sight, he says. Sometimes the, are you, the verbs of hearing are used. So in Ezekiel 9, 1 to 10, it's he cried. And in Isaiah 21, 2, a stern vision is told to him. So the idea here of the, the word for... Um, Revelation, to see, to, a vision, and the bar, the word or the event. Okay, it can be larger than just that word. All right, so that's about the title. All right, the author. Okay, Isaiah. Now, critical scholarship, all right, would disagree. Critical scholarship holds that Isaiah is divided into three books. 1 to 39, 40 to 55, and 56 to 66. Okay, so you got three different uh, parts. So I have a, a commentary set, International Theological Commentary, and uh, it's published in volumes. So they have three volumes on Isaiah, divided into exactly those three categories. Now, every
there that holds to the three three divisions doesn't necessarily hold to all the aspects of a critical view, which I'll talk about in a second. So the critical view sees these three parts as three separate authors. So Isaiah didn't write them. Okay, three different people wrote them. Okay, it's Isaiah, it's Deutero Isaiah, and it's Credo, Trido, Trido Isaiah. So first, second, third Isaiah, it's the same two words, right? So they don't hold that Isaiah wrote all this. The position holds to a date of composition around 550 BC while they're exiled in Babylon. So they believe that it was written after the exile and not before the exile. The primary reasons are this. Number one, the historical situation. Most of the first half of the book assumes the Caesarean crisis. Okay? The second half addresses the groups that are already in Babylonian exile who are anticipating imminent judgment on their captors and imminent restoration, which includes the reconstruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So Cyrus, this is the big sticking point, Cyrus doesn't live for another 150 years after the events described in Isaiah 36 to 39. And so the critical scholarship, they do not believe in predictive prophecy. There's no way they say that, that God revealed or that Isaiah knew, etc., that this guy Cyrus. Therefore, Isaiah did not write it. So who wrote it? Um, somebody else. We'll call it second, third Isaiah. That's the historical. The theological difference, the first half emphasizes God's majesty, points to a king descended from David, highlights the faithful remnant, and offers numerous historical details as the context for the oracle. The second half focuses on the universal dominion and eternality of God, and it points to a servant of Yahweh with no explicit mention of the Davidic dynasty. It speaks of the remnant, much less, and does not include historical details with the oracles, including no mention of Isaiah himself. So historical, theological, and thirdly, the language and style. There's no personal references to Isaiah after chapter 39, and the history and geography change after 39. So those are the reasons that critical scholarship does not believe Isaiah wrote it all. James Smith lists the following factors that support the traditional authorship. So the traditional authorship and scholarship holds that it was written by the prophet Isaiah who prophesied 742-700 in Jerusalem. What are his arguments for this? He actually has like about 12 of them here. The headings of the book and at least 13 other places in the book claim Isaiah as the speaker or writer. Jewish and Christian tradition is uniform in attributing the book to Isaiah. The Septuagint, translated around 260 B.C., shows no distinction between the two halves of the book. Um, ben Sirach, writing at 280 B.C., only knows of one Isaiah. The two complete Isaiah manuscripts found from the Dead Sea Scrolls indicate no break at the end of chapter 39. These manuscripts date to about a century and a half before Jesus. So in other words, they're saying we have these manuscripts not too long before Jesus that show the whole thing as one unified book. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writing under the Roman authority, attributes the Cyrus prophecy of chapter 44, 28, and 45, 1 uh, to Isaiah, the son of Amos. So he says that it's from that Isaiah. Additionally, uh, the two, let's see, Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth read from Isaiah 61, okay, which would be in that last part, and he said he was reading from who? Isaiah. In the New Testament, there's several passages from that second portion, Deutero-Isaiah, are quoted, and they're attributed simply to Isaiah. So John um, says, let's see, John cites chapter 6, 10, and 63, 1 in consecutive verses 
stating that they are both from Isaiah in John chapter 12, 38 through 41. Then Luke affirms that when the Ethiopian eunuch read from Isaiah 63, 7 through 8, that he was reading from the book of Isaiah the prophet. That's Acts 8, 28. The literary style of the second half of Isaiah is so similar to the first that even critics admit that Deutero Isaiah must have been a disciple of Isaiah who tried to imitate his master. A certain circle of ideas appears throughout the book, binding it together as the work of one author. The concepts of highway, Zion, the Holy One of Israel, and the pains of a woman in travail are but a few of the many. Many of the passages found in Deutero Isaiah are totally unsuitable to the period of the exile of Judah, where they are placed by the critics, but they're totally appropriate to the age of Isaiah, Senna, and Haman. And lastly, additionally, the Qumran scroll has both sections of Mosaic highlighted in Acts 8 as it did with it. So, 11 different reasons why the traditional view is the better view. Alright, any questions on that? That makes sense? We need to know all 22 first time. Alright, next, um, the messenger. Okay, who is this guy Isaiah? Okay, his name means salvation is Yahweh or Yahweh saves. And it's similar in Hebrew to Hosea, Joshua, and Jesus. Jesus is the angel from the Latin, from the Greek, from Joshua. Alright? His family life. He is the son of Amos, a relative of Uzziah, according to Jewish tradition, uh, with access to the king. Okay? In fact, um, Jewish tradition, get this, in the Talmud, suggests that Amos was the brother of King Amaziah and a descendant of Tamar. Now, there's no way of substantiating this. It's just a Jewish tradition in the, the Talmud writing. So, um, Isaiah does appear to have some sort of tribal responsibility during the reign of Uzziah. So, maybe it's Jews, maybe it's not, but so they connect it with, uh, even though they connect it with Tamar, in accordance with Jewish tradition. Um, he wrote the events of Uzziah's life. His wife, a prophetess, according to H3, but we don't have any prophetic messages you know, that, that she wrote. So there's two thoughts on that. One is that she did prophesy, but we just don't have anything. The other is she's called a prophetess because she's the, the wife of a prophet. So, And then um, sons. There's at least two. Um, and they're both listed. Maybe you can't read them back there. But they're both listed right there, and they have a, a prophetic element to their name. Shiar Gashub, a remnant shall return, is what his name means. Isaiah would remind himself of the people every time he called the Lord's name. Judgment would come, but a remnant will return. And Mahashael al Hashabah, the spoil speed, the prey patient, the prophecy against Damascus. In letter C, the death. The tradition attributes his death to Manasseh, who had Isaiah sawn in half. Hebrews 11, 37. So that would be the son of Hezekiah, under whom Isaiah was a prophet. Alright, so that's the messenger. What about his ministry? Okay, he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We know that from verse 1 of the book. Um, Isaiah received a call from God in Uzziah's last year, 742, not long after the death of Jeroboam II, in the beginning of Tiglath-Pileser's reign in Assyria. The ministry of Isaiah ended about 75 years before the call of Jeremiah, and he prophesied, as we've already said, about 740 to 700. Um, again, you'll see other dates. I don't know if you have to. You'll see all the way down to 
the big seven and perform well in writing. So, the recipients of his message uh, were Judas. He, he wrote and prophesied to Judas. Basically, the rebellion that's going on, there's going to be retribution. Repent, and there'll be restoration. Okay, that's just a simple thing. That's, that's how it works uh, in God's kingdom. Anyway, the setting. And the time, I've already mentioned, the 740 to uh, 700. All right? The place. Um, part one, Judah during the days of the Assyrian Empire was obviously pre-exilic Israel. So before they get exiled, he is um, talking to Judah, okay, during the Assyrian Empire, okay, before they're exiled. That's, that's book one, okay? Part one. Part two is Babylon after the deportation or exile and then Jerusalem and then the age to come. So there's, there's a progression here, okay? So the first part was the Assyria deal. Well, then Assyria dwindles. Assyria took the northern kingdom, but not the southern kingdom. Assyria dwindles, Babylon comes to power. Babylon is a new world empire. And then they're going to take Judah, all right? And so they'll be sent over to Babylon. But then it covers that period and the return and the restoration all together. And uh, I would uh, point you to the notes that I said I uploaded by Alan Ball on the empires for further information on the Assyrian and the Babylonian Uzziah, Judah reached its highest, uh, second highest, I'm sorry, second highest level of fame during Uzziah's reign. The, anybody know who would be the more famed one, period, golden age of Israel? Okay, so Solomon would be the highest or of, the, of the time, the golden rule, uh, but the second, the, the silver, would go to um, Uzziah. And he also made for quite a lengthy period of time. Uzziah built up the economy, the military, and he reorganized the country. He conquered the Philistines and the Arabians, and he received uh, tribute money from the Ammonites, which means he basically conquered them as well. Um, but he grew proud, and he tried to offer incense, uh, which was the job of the priest, and because of that, he got leprosy. So then he was banned from uh, the temple and kind of put in seclusion. And so that... Um, and maybe along with his age, is probably why number two king, Jotham, which is his son, is co-reigning with him. So for, I think, about ten years, from 750 to 740 or so, he is co-reigning with his father, okay, from uh, leprosy. After uh, Jotham is King Ahaz from 735 to 716, and then Hezekiah from 716 down to uh, 687 or so. Now, during this time period, there's uh, three major crises, okay? These are similar to the ones we talked about earlier, but a little bit different. The first one is the Syro-Ephraimite crisis, all right? This is Isaiah 7, talks about this. And this is the time period from 735 to 734. Syria with its king Rezin and Pekah, the king of Israel, okay? So, Syria is going to be up here. Israel is right here, all right, and Judah is here, all right. So Syria with 
of Israel, okay, according to 2 Chronicles 28.9, uh, Pekah had already attacked Judah and yet killed 120,000. So you can understand that. And there was a lot of um, war back and forth here also. Even though they're all God's people, there was a lot of war back and forth after they were a divided kingdom. So you have these two kings, one from Syria and one from Israel. They joined forces to rebel against the Assyrians, against um, Tiglath-Pileser, also known as Pol, okay? Tiglath-Pileser, the name you picked up. Um, around 740 B.C., they wanted Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join them in their attack. Ahaz refused and appealed to Pol for help against their threat, okay? So you have these two, okay, attacking... And God provided signs to Isaiah. This is where Isaiah 7.14 comes in. The verse in 2 Peter, that whole time thing. Okay? The Assyrians would have put an end to the rebellion without Ahaz's appeal. Ahaz's request for help was a, a bonus to the Assyrians. Paul was happy, Tiglath's leader was happy to come to Judah's aid and attack Israel in the north. But he did not leave when the crisis was passed. So think about it. If you want the world, and you're Assyria, he's asking for your help. Guess what? Okay. All right, fine. We're, we're already up to here. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll take out Syria, and we'll take Israel while we're at it. Who do you think is going to be next? Right here. Exactly. So, sure, you're going to help us take out these guys, including your, like, siblings? Uh, yeah, sure, we'll be in on that. Um, so, they do that. So, he's happy to come to Judah's aid. He doesn't leave when the crisis is passed. So, Damascus, that's Syria, falls in 732. Samaria, next one down, falls in 722, a long way of Israel, right? Um, by Sargon and Shalmaneser. They're the, they're the rulers at that point now. Sargon is the king of Assyria who invades the land. He dies while the siege of Samaria is in full force. And Shalmaneser V defeats him and finishes the job. Israel is resettled in Haran and led to what would become the, uh, the Samaritans. That's what I told you before. Haran is, is up in, in Kirish area. So here's my arrow I drew earlier for when Israel was deported. Um, I think it's about there. Okay. So when Abraham came, he came out of Ur, which is here, and he went to Haran until his dad died, and then he went to Canaan. So now they're going back to Haran, and they become they can become the Samaritans there. So that is the first crisis. That's the Syro-Ephraimite crisis. Okay. Later on, around 711 BC, in chapter 20 of Isaiah. Um, is the Ashdod Rebellion. Egypt encouraged some city-states to rebel against Assyria. Assyria defeats the rebellion, and to Hezekiah's credit, he did not join the rebellion. Okay, so Assyria has basically taken the whole area, and Egypt now is trying to get some people to push back. And Hezekiah says, no, we're not going to be part of that. All right, the third is the Sennacherib invasion, chapters 36 to 39 of Isaiah. And around 705 to 701 BC. Sargon II dies in 705 BC, leading to rebellion among the city states. Hezekiah joins the rebellion. He sides with Babylon. Hezekiah showed them his treasuries. You read that in the, the book of Isaiah. This is uh, right after he gets uh, healed by God. He gets 51 years of life, right? 
and he's at the point of crisis, Assyria under Sennacherib had besieged Jerusalem. Sennacherib invaded the land several times. According to his account, on the third campaign, he destroyed 46 cities. He carried off 200,000 people from Judah and imposed heavy tribute on the land and locked up Hezekiah in the city of Jerusalem like a bird. All right, what that means is it surrounded it. He, he was there for a couple of years. Isaiah counseled Hezekiah to stand firm and to trust God. If you know the story, you know that that night when Isaiah decided to trust God, the angel of the Lord showed up and 185,000 Assyrians died that night while Hezekiah slept. This is what God has been trying to teach his people all along. Is trust me and I'll take care of you. Be in right relationship with me. Follow the covenant. I will bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. Assyria is sinning against my people. My people are in a right relationship with me. Don't you worry about Egypt to help you out or Babylon to help you out. I'll take care of Assyria. That's the promise. So we can see that it actually worked when they followed. So those are the three major crises. Okay, what are the themes in Isaiah? Well, the Holy One of Israel will judge, restore, and save his people. You could argue that that's the, the, the top theme. Um, there's some additional themes or topics that are repeated quite a bit in the book. And so some of them are right here. The holiness of God, I just mentioned. Uh, the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is found in every major division of the book. So if the critical scholarship wants to argue that there's all these changes in themes and topics and, and settings, well, the phrase, the Holy One of God, okay, uh, you, you don't have to write all these down, but I'm just going to say them. first section, chapter 1 to 39, the Holy One of Israel is mentioned in 1, 4, 5, 19, 5, 24, 10, 20, 12, 6, 17, 7, um, 29, 19, 30, 11, 30, 12, 30, 15, 31, 1, and 37, 23. Not a curse sometimes, right? In the second section, okay, verses 40 to 55, following the three-part division that the critical scholars call it, it's mentioned in 41, 14. 41 16, 41 20, 43 3, 43 14, 45 11, 47 4, 48 17, 49 7, 64 5, and 65 65. I hope that last one's correct. In the second, um, or the third section, it's mentioned in 60 verse 9 and 60 verse 14. So if you were to ask me a question and say, look, it's mentioned all these times, what do you think about that whole I would say that I have to take so the holiness of God, holiness being separate, other, etc. The, the next theme is knowing God. The idea of knowing God through an active relationship expressed through the divine word. Uh, I think I read the verse earlier, the ox knows me, but you do not. He's saying, wh wh what's going on here? We don't have this relationship. Our covenant relationship is broken. You don't know me. Salvation is the next one. The word is used 26 times and only 7 times in, in other prophets. So it's a big deal in Isaiah. The next topic is the servant song. Um, have you heard of the servant song before? You know the servant song? No? Okay, so the servant songs are there's are mentioned four there's four phrases. Tell you this. Some people argue there's a fifth one. This, this is something you should write down. Um, Isaiah 42, 1 to 4 is 
the pyramid cone. Let's look. Isaiah 49, 1 to 6. 50, 4 to 9. 52, 13 through 53, 12. Well, actually, 4. Some people add chapter 61, 1 to 6. But it's the first 4. Say it again. 42, 1 to 4. 49, 1 to 6. 50, 4 to 9. And 52, 13 to 53, 12. And then 61, 1 to 2 is just added up, but most people don't don't include that one. Um, now, not that nothing else I said is important, or that you don't need to know it, but the service songs are theologically important, and We'll spend some time next week talking about this. They're theologically important because there's a messianic aspect to them, and they're connected with Jesus and his ministry in the New Testament, and the fact that what God does through the servant songs is he basically says, there's been no servant able to accomplish what was necessary to be accomplished for the salvation of mankind. So I will come and be the servant that I need. So in a sense, I'll be my own servant, themes are justice and injustice and we've already made some comments about that so I'll leave that and the day of the Lord and I've made comments about that as well so we'll move on from there alright the structure of the book and we're, we're really not going to get much further than uh, this because I, I got that 10 minute video up on The first thing I want to do is just give kind of a general structure, all right? One of the things that has to be decided with the book of Isaiah is whether or not you're going to divide it into two parts or three parts, all right? And what I have on the screen here is both options are on the screen in reality. So chapters 1 to 39, there's no debate about. So the first section is going to be the first 39 chapters, all right? This is about uh, rebellion and retribution, okay, or condemnation and judgment. It's directed to Isaiah's generation, all right? Um, you've seen this part on the screen before. Repent and trust God. You refuse, you get judgment, right? So there's, there's no real debate. Everyone pretty much agrees 1 to 39. The debate is over whether there is one more part or, or two more parts to that. So the next part would be redemption and hope. Everyone pretty much will agree on that. The question is, does it go from chapter 40 all the way to 66 or 40 to 55? So if you hold to a tripart, three-part three division, you're going to go 40 to 55. Um, it's directed to the future Babylonian exiles. This is the, the part, again, where the critical scholarship, they, they, they cringe at it. They're like, how could he be prophesying to the future Babylonian exiles as if he knows when they're going to be exiled? Because that's the whole point. That, that's the whole point of predictive prophecy, that Yah, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, king of his covenant people does know everything and he does reveal at certain times things we want him to know or kings to know so if you hold to a tripart 
five part night, three part division, then 56 to 66 would be the third portion, okay? And that's going to be the restoration and the right living and it's directed to future exiles that have returned to Jerusalem. So, uh, contextually speaking, or um, maybe setting-wise, uh, they're in Jerusalem, they're in exile in Babylon, and they're back in Jerusalem. So, it actually is almost an exegesis of it. Here uh, follows a, a three-part. That's the, that's the same. Um, that's how the law got abolished. Also, Leviticus goes on for a three-part again. This is Jerushi. Um, he follows a two-part, as you can see from the A and the B. Uh, the Book of Judgment, the warning, which same thing I said. I just phrased it differently earlier. And the Book of Comfort. All right, looking beyond the exile, and you can see that he's got one to thirty-nine, and then. Um, that's a typo on, on his part. That should not be 39. Uh, should be 36, I think. Nope. Nope. My bad. No, 39. Yeah, that's right. And then 40 starts the next part. So, yeah, 1 to 39, and then 40 to 66. And you can note that he, he's got these divided into uh, nine chapter sections uh, down here. So, you'll find a lot of um, traditional will follow the, the two-part, the critical commentaries will follow the three-part, uh, but then you, there's also a group of traditional that will follow the three-part. Following the three-part doesn't mean that you think the CLJ is wrong. It would just mean that you think that, structurally speaking, you do think that there is a, a structural change uh, at this point. I will quickly... We've already actually um, looked at briefly the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and Kings of Judah. So because of the time, we actually are not going to be able to go any further. So we didn't get into any of the text except like verse 1. Um, I don't want to give you both of these uh, read the scripture Bible project videos next week. That would be almost 20 minutes probably. Uh, a video time, so you can consider the one you're going to watch right now as a, an intro into uh, the first 39 chapters of the text, and then next week, after we talk through the text, I'll play the end one, which will cover the last half of the book. Next week, what we will do is we will cover some of the material that is in uh, the text and deal with some of the themes. We'll hit uh, Jeremiah the following week. All right.